boil dripping, beef fart sniffing, bubble butt. Someone has a severe caca mouth. Do you know that? You are a fart factory. Slug slime, sack of rat guts and cat vomit. Cheesy scab picked, pimple squeezing finger bandage. A week old maggot burger with everything on it and flies on the side. Substitute chemistry teacher. Come on, Rubio, hit a mat. Mung tongue. Math tutor. Pinhead. Prison barber. Mother lover. Nearsighted gynecologist. In your face, camel cake. In your rear, cow derriere. Lying, crying, spying, prying, ultra pig. You lewd, crude, rude, bag of pre-chewed food, dude. Bag of rain, Peter! You man! Stupid, stupid man! Rufio, if I'm a maggot burger, why don't you just eat me? You two-toned, zebra-headed, slime-coated, pimple-farming, paramecium brain, munching on your own mucus, suffering from Peter Pan envy. What's a paramecium brain? I'll tell you what a paramecium is. That's a paramecium. It's a one-cell critter with no brain that can't fly. Don't mess with me, man. I'm a lawyer. Benny, 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 Ladies, gentlemen, lost boys and fairies, welcome aboard the Jolly Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we head to the second star on the right and straight on till morning to explore the neverland of Amblin' entertainment. I am one half of your host, Andy Godian. And I'm the other half, Josh Glenn. And today we are very happy to be joined by writer, film journalist, and UK Jewish film marketing manager, Sarah Cook. Welcome to Ramblin', Sarah, and Bangarang. <laughs> Bangarang, Ramblin', Ramblin'. <laughs> no. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a joy to have you here. Uh, this has been close to pretty much a, a year in the works because we, we all ran into each other in the Genesis Cinema outdoor <laughs> bar when, uh, <laughs> when things first opened back up last year. And uh, you expressed your uh, love for Hook there and... Uh, very much penciled in, penciled you in, and now we're here. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> it's nice to see you under more sober something. conditions. <laughs> yes, that was a that was a one of those nights that kind of got away from me. Uh... <laughs> Us too. I, I mean, I think that that just speaks to the kind of like there was that weird mania when things were opening back up again, and everyone was just like, "Oh yes, we're back outside." <laughs> <laughs> And because, like, you can order stuff on your on the app, I think it's yeah. more dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's very dangerous. Like, <laughs> going up to the bar, you sort of have that kind of like, sure, I want one more, but when you're like, 
One more. We've just ordered it on the app. Too late now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for s- facilitating our behavior, Genesis Bar. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Which I still think still exists now. I think they've kept it as a permanent yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go back. Like, <laughs> yes, if there's any excuse. I mean, Genesis Cinema is my favorite cinema in London. Mm. So yeah. um, it's always worth shouting to go back and visit Genesis Cinema as much as possible. Absolutely. I have to tag them in this episode now to say, like, we're giving you a yeah. shout out. <laughs> <laughs> and they have good pies there, too. It's rare that you find a cinema that does pies uh, as a northern man. It as a northern man, yeah. To me. <laughs> it's a really, really good, really good pies. Yeah. Probably East London pies yeah. as well, you know? <laughs> oh, Genesis Cinema. <laughs> now, of course, we have brought you here to talk about. Uh, Amblin and Hook in particular but um, before we kind of get into that what is sort of the you are very clearly a film lover and you're uh, a voice I've followed on film the film Twitter verse for a few years now um, what are sort of the kind of uh, formative films for you that growing up that kind of bled into like really encouraged and nurtured this uh, love of cinema oh so obviously the film that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. today um, goes without saying this is one of the, the few films that my family will watch on a regular basis um, that I grew up with um, uh, I was a 90s kid so I was born in like 89 mm-hmm. so the, kind of the Amblin was my was the film like the films that I grew up with E.T. Gremlins uh, Jurassic Park um, and all that kind of like big grand films, as well as the Disney's mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast and all, all that. Um, uh, I was going to say nonsense, <laughs> but it's not nonsense. It's wonderful <laughs> and art and, and creativity um, and things like that. And then I think, I think the main love for film came from when I was 13. Cause I've loved films since I went to museums, cinema museums. But when I was 13, 14, my mum introduced me to Science of the Lamb. Nice. Um, and I think that was the first film where I understood the power of film, you know, like it fully clicked in that, uh, you know, art doesn't have to be all fairy tales and like gross, gross out horror. Cause obviously growing up, you'd watch a lot, you sneak a lot yeah. of horrors in, <laughs> um, art could be so it could get under your skin and it could, and it's such a powerful mm-hmm. movie and that kind of made me sit back and realize that mm. cinema is not just for watching it's for escaping and it's for telling these stories however down yeah. sarah do the lambs <laughs> still scream <laughs> tell me where you are dr lecter on a serious note though uh, one of the questions <laughs> i always ask guests on a podcast which sprung up from a organic conversation that andy and i had back in our early days is uh does the film et make you cry no Pretty decisive, uh, and it's probably <laughs> i know it's a surprising thing and i think it's because i grew up with it i when mm. i was growing up i was never a cry i think if i watched it now i'd probably cry but because i grew up as a kid who liked et as a silly alien and less <laughs> yeah. about the emotional story yeah. of it i would probably not it doesn't make me cry as i say if i'd watched that as an adult watching like watching it i've 
think you've made me realize why I don't cry at it. Mm. <laughs> I've never thought <laughs> to think of it in that way, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> right? Like he was, he was a silly creature that was quite creepy and it was really like heartbreaking when he was dying. Mm-hmm. But then he, then he lives and they have this great, great adventure and you kind of like, uh, I, I understand why people cry at it, but for me it's like, it's like the the whole Ewoks and Star Wars kind of thing. Like oh, yeah, there will never yeah. be anything more than like cuddly creatures to me. And I think E.T. was the silly, silly monster that <laughs> silly you know. I do love that <laughs> description. <laughs> <laughs> Cinema the silly alien. it's a good little pocket (laughs) now you dropped a few kind of amblin titles in there so so what is it for you that kind of what encompasses the kind of feeling of an amblin film what is what is it that makes an amblin film an amblin film for you oh my god that's a tricky question to navigate um uh i mean because for me it's childhood right so like Mm -hmm. all the films that i grew up watching I remember this, the, the, the title card in front of it. Um, and even it was, ju- it's just that kind of that. If I see it, when I see it, if I see it, if I think about it, I just am instantly a nineties kid putting on the DVD, the DVD, no <laughs> video. <laughs> laser disc. For the, um- <laughs> laser disc for the umpteenth time. Uh, it, it, the, the amount of films, that like when I was looking up about Amblin to do this podcast, I was like, oh my god, this is this is Amblin, this is Amblin, this is yeah. Amblin, mm. which is probably why it's so entrenched in my kind of like core that every time I see that kind of and by the way, sorry, sidebar completely. It took me until researching for this podcast to realize it was Steven Spielberg's kind of production company, hence why it's ET. And, and you know when you're like, mm, of course, this makes much more sense. <laughs> dominoes again. The penny drops. <laughs> oh, the dominoes are falling into place. But it, it, is, it is that kind of like that feeling of putting on a film on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Um, and what, even if you've watched it once or a billion times, I will always go back, back there. So that kind of sat around the TV watching probably this film for the umpteenth time yeah (laughs) it's very much why we put these out on a sunday afternoon it's just because it that it's that perfect sweet spot of when many of us would have first discovered these movies and uh funnily enough the date we're aiming for to uh push this uh to release this is this sunday which will coincidence completely by coincidence will mark the 30th anniversary of Hook's UK release date, which is a, which is a complete happy accident there. <laughs> that's such a that's such a happy accident. Oh, yeah. 30 years that makes yeah. me feel oh. <laughs> We're all there with you, <laughs> mate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to grow re- up. I want to go yeah. to Neverland. <laughs> like, I now understand Hook more. Like when I watch it, I'm like, I get. Mm. I get this more. <laughs> <laughs> now, b- before we dive right on into the hook of it all, I, w- I would love to know what Joshua Glenn thinks hook is all about. So please <sighs> okay. take it away. <laughs> so I, I've, I've, I've tried to keep my cards close to my chest as regards to my opinion of this film in my synopsis. <laughs> um, okay, so Robin Williams plays Peter Banning, some kind of West Coast lawyer who we know is a workaholic because it's a 90s film. And he has a cell phone. 
He's, he's <laughs> such a workaholic, in fact, that he emotionally neglects his wife, Moira, played by Caroline Goodall, talks on the phone during the school play of his irritating daughter, Maggie, played by Amber Scott, Aww. and misses a crucial baseball game involving his irritating son, Jack, played by Charlie Cosmo. 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 Uh, things come to a head during a family trip to London to see Moira's mother, Wendy Darling, played by Maggie Smith, caked in lots of old age makeup. <laughs> After he erupts at his children for being annoying, Peter leaves to accompany Moira and Wendy to a charity dinner at Great Ormond Street Hospital. When they return, they find the house broken into, their irritating children missing, and a ransom note left impaled to a door by a sword. Shortly after, once the police have proven to be of little assistance, the police being Phil Collins, Wendy tells Peter that he is the only one who can save his children, as, as he is the legendary Peter Pan. Peter refuses to believe this, but he's soon visited by the irritating Pixie Tinkerbell, played by Julia Roberts, <laughs> and carried off to Neverland, where he immediately encounters the irritating perpetrator of kidnapping, Captain Hook, played by Dustin Hoffman, and his obsequious sidekick, Mr. Smee, played by Bob Hoskins. Given Peter's aged form and diminished ability, Hook refuses. Hook first refuses to believe that he really is his old foe, and then decides to kill them all out of frustration. Thankfully, the irritating Tinkerbell is able to convince Hook to allow Peter to train for three days and face up to him for a proper duel. And so it is that Peter must unfortunately return to the Lost Boys, consisting of wicked cool skateboarder Rufio, played by Dante Basco, and a bunch of irritating little moppets, convince them all of who he is and rediscover his sense of imagination. All before the irritating Hook can persuade Peter's irritating children to stay with him. And it also turns out that Tinkerbell fell in love with Peter as a baby. <laughs> Cars close to your chest. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I had a, a, a reaction to this film. And as soon as you came on, Sarah, full of positivity, saying how much you loved it, I thought, oh, no. I've misjudged the tone of this. And I was, I was thinking, can I rewrite this on the fly as I'm going through it? But so I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologies not. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm going now. Bye. Uh, <laughs> I will. Uh, I will I, withdraw from this conversation. <laughs> bad form. Bad form. Bad form. Bad form. Bad form. <laughs> Pull me out of this hole, Andy. <laughs> uh, so, so very clearly, this is one that you grew up with, Sarah. Can. Can you pinpoint a moment when you think you may have watched it for the first time? Or is it very much something that's just always been there? Um, I have been told that it was my first film in the cinema. Oh, that's magic. Um, yeah. Yes, sacred, right? Sacred Isn't event. it just? Um, but I can't really remember being in the cinema to watch it. Um, I just remember it always being around. Um it is it's one of the films that makes my dad cry um and i just remember always being curled up next to him watching it and taking the mick out of him for crying <laughs> uh which now i cry at it every time yeah <laughs> so, like, oh i see where so you were coming from dad <laughs> now i'm the one <laughs> yeah, I, I understand this more now um and it's just always been the film that's so entrenched in my family culture culture can that that make sense my family being that me my sister and my dad will quote this on a regular basis like and it's not just so like we won't just quote it it's part of our lexicon now 
some of the things that say it, like Aloe, trouble with the missus, <laughs> stuff like that, just comes in, we'll just say it and it will just come out and we'll be like, oh, it's from Hook. This is why we're, we're doing it. It's so entrenched in our family, in our family makeup mm-hmm. that it's, it's yeah. So it, it's it's hard to not see it through those kind of rose-tinted eyes, totally. to be honest. Totally. Well, that, yeah. that's, that's one of the big... <laughs> Tenements of Amblin, I think we find talking to guests mm-hmm. on the show, and also you and I are privy to that too sometimes with our picks as well. Oh, I absolutely! Think, really. <laughs> did did you grow up with it, Josh, or is this maybe? Yeah, it's one of those. Uh, I feel like you know, you and I used to scour the Radio Times or the the you know TV guides around Christmas time and make little notes of all the films that are on what channels over Christmas oh, yes. and work our way through them. This seemed. I remember this being a bit of a Christmas mainstay. It was one of my Mm. note card mainstays around Christmas time. And it's quite a long film. I think as a kid, you've got not much of a sense of time. And this film just feels, it it feels like three in one almost. I remember little bits throughout this that have stuck in my head vividly, like uh, Mm -hmm. the old man who lost his marbles at the start. He's very, very vivid (laughs) in my head as a kid. And just like the whole London at Christmas time, the images of, of Westminster yeah. Bridge covered in snow, and uh, and of course like the the bit that I think has unshakably been there my entire life just about is the imaginary food fight scene. That's a oh, pretty yeah. indelible scene for a young person to witness. So <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't even I, I watched it a couple of years ago, and even watching it again for this, there were there were large chunks that I'd forgotten. But there are certain certain images and certain moments that do very much stick in your head. I think. Yeah. Just, yeah. To, to to its credit. Mm-hmm. What about yourself? I, I remember having it on a... I had it on a... You remember, like, those kind of VHS tapes that let you record about, like, six hours on them? Like, you could get, like, the three-hour tape, you could get the four-hour tape, and then there was, like, a bumper six-hour tape. And I had I had this uh, on the same tape as Home Alone 2 um, with uh, <laughs> ITV adverts and all. So <laughs> I very much paired the two films together. And Inspired pairing. Yeah, and it's one of those films that kind of feels like one of those uh, kind of unofficial Christmas Christmas movies. Mm. Uh, both kind of speaking to what you were saying about how like just the general snow blanket London setting has that kind of rich Christmassy feel, and it, that that is just the time it was always on. Yeah, and when I first recorded it, so like even like I'm kind of picturing the kind of like. Um, I think it was Lurpak Le- Butterman adverts that were on it that were <laughs> Christmas themed that I can really remember. <laughs> so very much a kind of stuck in that kind of seasonal mode for me. Yeah. Um, uh, but and before we get into the kind of production side of it, I'm c- kind of keen to know um, what your kind of uh, connections to Peter Pan himself as kind of like a cultural figure were. Uh, start with you, Sarah. Um, that's a in oh intriguing question. I guess I grew up with Disney a lot, so yeah. so I, obviously the the original Disney cartoon. But I genuinely think, if I'm being honest with myself, that Hook was probably the, the mm-hmm. biggest Peter Pan influence um, in in my life. Um, and even though I'd watched watched it and read the book, and I'm sure that there was a couple of school plays that we must have done when I was a kid around it i i think hook would probably be its biggest influence in my life yeah yeah i think that's fair fair to say we uh, we were like likewise quite a uh heavy 
uh, Disney household. So I'm pretty sure I would have seen the Disney one ahead of this to get get some kind of uh, grounding in the kind of idea of this being like a spiritual sequel. <laughs> yeah. How about yourself, you know, Josh? You you remember how the Disney Vault used to be a thing pre Disney mm. Plus, and you'd have maybe like five titles on rotation every what five or so years, and Peter Pan was one one of my only five Disney VHSs. So I watched it an awful lot as a kid, much more so than Hook, and much more mm. so than most other Disney films. So that's kind of where I begin and end with Peter Pan is the Disney. Yeah. The Disney Peter Pan, which I haven't watched for a while. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. I, I hear it's not <laughs> aged particularly well in certain places, but yeah, <laughs> I can't can't think what that might be. But yeah, it's certainly uh, yeah, it, 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 yeah. That's that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. I think I watched it again back at uni because I worked on peter pan on a on the screenwriting course and oh, i, I remember did, watching it you? then yeah. and just like oh <laughs> <laughs> oh dear <laughs> uh, well but but uh the only reason i ask is um to le- allow me to have a lovely segue into the production notes history for uh steven spielberg was a very big fan of peter pan growing up um often uh recounting um fond memories of his mother reading him stories of uh, Peter Pan and Wendy uh, at bedtime. And that fascination with the character only grew as Spielberg himself grew up. Um, And he's quoted in saying in 1985 that when he was 11 years old, one of the first things he directed was uh, a school play of uh, Peter Pan. I've always felt like Peter Pan, he said. It's been very hard for me to grow up. I'm a victim of the Peter Pan syndrome. And I think particularly in this kind of early early say like kind of pre Schindler's List part of Spielberg's career I think you can still you can really track that kind of Peter Pan um sense of nature and very much that Peter Pan syndrome of a very playful filmmaker kind of refusing those uh refusing that uh (laughs) that uh push to grow up but um his own version of Peter Pan uh took a little while to get to the screen for development for his version of Peter Peter Pan began as early as 1985, um, when he first began pursuing the rights from the Great Ormond Street Hospital. Uh, back then, it was going to be a bit more of a straightforward uh, adaptation of J. M. Barry's play, more akin to the silent 1924 film starring Betty Bronson, which was the first ever adaptation of Barry's 1904 play. And also at the time, it was rumored that it was being fashioned as a possible vehicle for Michael Jackson, um, who, upon not actually receiving the role at the end of the day, took it as a personal offense from Spielberg and never taught to him again. (laughs) (laughs) Seems a bit like, oh, (laughs) calm down, Michael. (laughs) He'll he'll return in in, uh, about 10 years of ambling time in our discussions, won't he, Angie, for a particular sequel to an intergalactic crime-fighting agency. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, speaking of kind of the enduring nature of Peter Pan, um, around this time when he was first developing um, a Pan project, um, Spielberg likened the character to being like one of the original superheroes, saying that the first time I saw anybody fly, before I saw Superman fly, before I saw Batman, I saw my first memory of anybody flying is Peter Pan. Any time when anything flies, be it Superman, Batman, or E.T., 
it's always a tip of the hat to Peter Pan. Um, and that's from an interview he did with Cinema Papers. And while that clear fascination with the character was there, um, Spielberg himself kind of stepped away from the project in 1985, despite the fact that a script had already been written by James V. Hart. Hoffman had already been cast as Hook and uh, pre-production was al- already beginning on sound stages in London. Um, and the reason for stepping back was because Spielberg became a father to uh, his f- first son, Max, of Jaws 19 fame, of course. Um, uh, quoting an interview around the time of release, Spielberg said, I decided not to make Peter Pan when I had my first child as I didn't want to go to London and have seven kids on wires in front of blue screens when all I wanted to do was be at home and be a dad. And it was also around this time that he was similarly courting Big, which kind of clearly has similar sort of thematic crossovers. Um, And he ended up not pursuing either at the time and kind of put that focus of a blend of kind of uh, child's eye view and kind of the reality of not wanting to grow up into Empire of the Sun. Mm-hmm. Which you can listen in a previous episode from <laughs> <laughs> a feverish episode, if I remember, which I don't. <laughs> and it was at this point that when Spielberg dropped out in '85, um, whilst the film was still at Paramount Studios, um, that uh, they decided to move in a different direction with James Hart still attached as a screenwriter, um, but with a new director involved. And it was at this point that Hart decided to kind of completely go back to the drawing board and create a fresh pitch for this take on peter pan rather than it be You're yes not not going to mention the director oh no i'm coming to that don't okay. worry <laughs> over an okay. um, in order to kind of make the project stand out from like other peter pan tales that were kind of being uh thrown around hollywood at the time um Hart decided to rework it as a sequel of sorts to the tales of Peter and Wendy, with the idea of bringing back Captain Hook inspired by a drawing one of his children had made that depicted Hook escaping from the uh, mouth of the crocodile. But whilst he couldn't quite figure out how to get to this point of Hook being alive and well and drawing a grown-up Peter uh, and drawing Peter back to Neverland, um, it was his son Jake again who kind of came in with the inspiration by asking the question, if what if Peter Pan decided to grow up? Hart recalls that his immediate response was to say, no, of course not. Of course he wouldn't decide to grow up. Um, to which Jake uh, responded with, but what if he did? And it was at that moment he realized uh, if Peter did Ding. grow up, he'd just be like all of us baby boomers who are now in our 40s. I patted <laughs> him after several of my friends on Wall Street where the pirates wear three-piece suits and ride in limos. So there was the new hook for this uh project if you pardon the pun you've done that and... several times you've done that se- don't think you can sneak those in there as frequently as you are and we're not going to notice Andrew. <laughs> sorry <laughs> so with the fresh fresh script in place a new director came aboard in the form of nick castle in the shape uh, who had previously of yes <laughs> who had previously directed the 1984 sci-fi adventure movie the last starfighter but would perhaps better be known uh, to listeners as the as shape the of Michael Myers of in the original. The oh. <laughs> and, yes, we go on to direct Dennis the Menace later <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> that 
Sarah was to me, I think, what Hook is to you, the Dennis the Menace film. <laughs> so Dennis the Menace film, I've never seen, but it's so the the trailer is so entrenched in yeah. my subconscious because it was on like every kids' film trailer. Oh my like, god! Every, yeah. like, when you watch the video, every video <laughs> came with Dennis the oh. Menace, and I don't think I've ever watched it, but I remember that trailer so vividly. It's like. At the end of the little my little mermaid VHS, there was an advert for Disneyland, and that is entrenched in my subconscious, yeah. like deep down. <laughs> you know, there's, oh. there's a YouTube channel. I think maybe Andy, you brought it to my attention. No, is it a mm. YouTube channel or a, a Twitter account? Maybe both. It's a and, YouTube and it, channel. Yeah. yeah, and they they post uh, like the opening ten minutes to videotapes from the early nineties, so you can see all these processions of trailers that are so etched into our brains. And it's such a trip watching them again. And being dragged back into that mindset, yeah. There's that one like Disney montage trailer that has Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. Do you know when he goes, "Let's go," and it's like yeah. really funny, <laughs> and like that. And I'm not like well, like entrenched in Peter Pan car- the cartoon from Disney, but that moment, oh, my heart just goes. I'm like, oh, oh my God. And I'll probably be like 80 in a retirement home and someone will go, let's go. And my heart goes, and I'll get like, oh, yeah. Shortcut nostalgia button right there. Absolutely, absolutely, and that like home entertainment during Disney was like da, na, 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 yeah. na, that little kind of like rolling Make sure thing. Your Disney yeah. videotape has Duh. a genuine Disney hologram sticker on the box. <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs> you remember? If in doubt, telephone the Federation against copyright theft. <laughs> Fact. Anyway, on one six one. Be very I, impressive if you can remember joke. that number. That we are, we, you know, we are technically pirating films when we watch Hook because it's a pirate film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Shout out to my dad and his bad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the place for it. That's our Hook. Anyway, Andrew. I... <laughs> That's quite all right. I, I very much enjoy going down that route. <laughs> Right, we're now in 1989, and uh, the title has been officially changed to Hook by this point, and the project has moved from Paramount to TriStar Pictures, which at the time was headed by Mike Medaboy, who happened to have been Steven Spielberg's first talent agent. And at this point as well, Robin Williams, uh, very much a bona fide star at this point, with an Oscar nomination under his belt for 1987's Good Morning Vietnam. He had signed on the dotted line, but both he and Hoffman were having created differences with Castle. This led to Medavoy reaching out to his old client and s- trying to sell uh, the newly formed and quite radically different project to Spielberg. And now that uh, a few t- few years have passed uh, between, between uh, the initial development and Max's birth, and the idea had so radically changed, Spielberg felt drawn to it again, seeing the, gr- the concept of a grown-up Peter Pan as a unique take on the classic character and something he felt he could relate to when it came to the fractured relationship between father and son. I think a lot of people today are losing their imagination because they are work-driven. They are so self-involved with work and success with work and success and arriving at the next plateau that children and family almost become incidental. I've experienced this myself, he said. 
when I've been on a very tough shoot and I've not seen my kids except on weekends. They ask my time. I can't give it to them because I'm working. Poor, poor Max Spielberg. Oh. <laughs> so uh, there was still the small matter of uh, Nick Castle attached to the project. But um, TriStar were quite happy to pay him the handsome settlement of $500,000 and a story by credit for his work. <laughs> so not a bad day's Not a bad, not a bad day's, day's job, job indeed. <laughs> God, I'd like to be paid to not do any work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before going uh, in front of cameras, Spielberg briefly re- reworked on the script with Hart and a rewrite uh before hiring uh, Marlia Scotch Marmo to, to rewrite a lot of Captain Hook's dialogue and Carrie Fisher to rework a lot of Tinkerbell's. Hart and Marmo ended up with screenplay credit, uh, with Hart and Castle being credited for the story, while Fisher went uncredited. But don't worry, she does appear as one half of the couple kissing on the bridge during Peter's first flight out of London, with the other half being Star Wars creator George Lucas. <laughs> what a roller coaster of news that sentence was. <laughs> That's good. That's bad. <laughs> Much like poetry. Uh, <laughs> filming commenced on February 19th, 1991, occupy- occupying the many sound stages at Sony Pictures Studios in Culver City, California. Uh, while the original production budget was set at $48 million, um, the film ended up ballooning up to around the 60 to 80 million mark with the 76 day schedule running over by about 40 days um, spielberg has since admitted to feeling out of depth with uh, a lot of the scale of the project including the flight scenes as, as well as having a hard time working with the rebellious crew of young actors and there, there was also quite a a tension on the set which uh made a few headlines at the time as well involving a then 24 year old star julia roberts as tinkerbell with the some of the crew somewhat callously ending up calling her tinker hell due to apparent difficulties with her behavior on set oh, damn. Uh, this came from a combination of factors one was she was working in solitude against a green screen and was rea- very much reacting to the kind of quite lonely working conditions and two, her wedding to Kiefer Sutherland was called off three days before it was supposed to happen <gasps> mid-shoot um, after he, he was caught cheating, which led to Roberts reportedly leaving California to hide from the press out in Ireland, which Spielberg then had to kind of get on the phone and say, you have to come back. We we still have to shoot stuff and you can't be in Ireland, which um, she did. She did eventually come back, but um, the resulting kind of nervous exhaustion she felt from this experience later taking a two-year hiatus after after hook and she has since expressed disappointment um from on uh, disappointment at spielberg for not having her corner more when it came to mm. the kind of barrage of press that she received at the time um she called him a turncoat yes <laughs> it, when you do hear how you were just quite dismissive of like what the, mm, mm-hmm. the what she was going through at the time so i'm, I'm not surprised that she used those sounds words. shit yeah well, we've all seen notting hill so we know how tough it can be yeah. to be in that situation that she found herself in but um to alleviate some of the tensions on on the set uh lovely bob hoskins would often sing various versions of lionel richie's hit hello by changing the lyrics to hello is it me you're looking for <laughs> <laughs> 
Solid. A plus. <laughs> Triple A plus. And he also that uh, man bought beer worth for... his weight in gold. <laughs> yeah. And he also bought beer for around three hundred uh crew and extras after a lengthy and complicated scene was cut. So he decided to up their spirits by getting them getting them drunk, which is just a bit <laughs> he just sounds like a top bloke, does old Bob Hoskins. <laughs> what a what a fella. <laughs> Oh, what a, what a legend. Yeah. <laughs> so over budget and over schedule, it was something of a dash to the finish line to get the film ready for its holiday release in the US. But it did set sail on December 11th, 1991, earning $13.5 million in its opening weekend, going on to gross $119.7 million in, the, uh, in North America and $181.2 million overseas, accumulating for a worldwide total of just over $300 million, which made it the fourth highest grossing film of 1991, behind Disney's Beauty and the Beast, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And it's also the sixth highest grossing pirate-themed <laughs> film of all time, behind all five films in the Pirates of the Caribbean series. <laughs> I was going to say, there aren't too many second guesses for what... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe cut through Island. Sure. <laughs> um, at the time of its release, it garnered the most negative reviews of Spielberg's career up to that point, with Roger Ebert stating that its failures lay in its inability to reimagine the material, to find something new, fresh, or urgent to do with the Peter Pan myth. Spielberg himself has been one of uh, the loudest voices in terms of the kind of negative, negative criticism cloud that has kind of followed hook uh since its release uh as he has often spoken about his disappointment uh in the final product telling empires recently as 2018 that he felt like a fish out of water i didn't have confidence in the script i had confidence in the first act and i had confidence in the epilogue i didn't have confidence in the body of it and he also added i didn't quite know what i was doing and tried to paint over my insecurity with production value the more insecure i felt the bigger and more colourful the sets became. Have to fly. Have to fight. Have to crow. Have to save Maggie. Have to save Jack. Okay, he's back. Who? Run! So to that point... Um, and to kind of lead into our broader discussion here, um, for you on the kind of like bigger Spielberg picture, would you could because he's even kind of I think even worded it as saying it, it's his least favorite film of his that he that he's made. How does it kind of how do you see it play as a a piece of like kind of Spielberg's overall film filmography? Uh, Sarah, let's start with you. Oh, you see, you're talking to someone who's like. The biggest hook fan so for me <laughs> it will be if someone goes watch your favorite spielberg movie i will go hook like immediately yeah. straight away and even though there is like in my cortex my cerebral cortex and my my actual brain will go what are you talking about there's jaws and there's like um i've just forgotten every single spielberg film that's ever existed <laughs> you know and, <laughs> and et there's all this i'd be like no it's it's yeah. it's hook i would i would generally put it up there but it that could be because i'm rose into glasses again 
Um, but at the same time, I think it's such an accomplishment um, yeah. on a grand scale of of a production and how thematically it tells its story and its emotions. And as a kid, you watch it and it's like full of adventure. And as an adult, you now watch it and you can see it through adult eyes and see that kind of like refinding your inner child. I just think he, I think everyone has critics at the time and Spielberg himself has just kind of like misjudged his own film. I think personally. Well, I suppose I'll step in with a dissenting voice. <laughs> I think that we because so, um, we've covered what Andy termed the trilogy, the Growing Pains trilogy in Spielberg's mm. Oof, which is the Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, and Always. I mean, di- discounting Last Crusade, which is kind of in the middle of those for a second, and it, it does show an artist trying to get his head around. You know, okay, I, I've kind of mastered the pop blockbuster. I, I want to sort of now transition into more. Uh, highfalutin fare, more sort of worthy fare, and he's trying to recalibrate himself. And all three films are mixed successes, some much more so than others, always. Mm-hmm. But um, th- this to me kind of feels a little bit like an appendix to that almost, in that it- it's him in one sense retreating to something quite safe and familiar, which is this grandiose adventure, childlike wonder, and uh, God, the ladles of sentimentality. And in another way, it is also him trying to work through something that is inside him because he's quite open, as you've pointed out in your contextual bit, Andy. And as we're going to find out with the Feeblemans later this year, he's a filmmaker who's very open about what parts of him he's working through in his films. Mm. We know that he's the child of a broken home and he's reckoning with his relationship to his dad or the absence of his dad throughout his childhood in many of his films and this this kind of feel, it does feel like an extension of the Growing Pains trilogy yeah. uh, in in how nakedly he's trying to work through something very personal to him. But I also think he kind of writes himself a blank check to be a big kid and to sort of drink too much lemonade and run around <laughs> sliding on his knees and going, <laughs> And it's funny that you mentioned the he struggled with uh, corralling all the kids because a lot of this did give me Goonies vibes. You know, yeah. the, some of the more raucous bits of the Goonies. I don't know if you've seen the Goonies recently, Sarah. There's that's a film that I think really benefits from having seen it as a kid. If you watch it now with naked eyes, you'll think, "Oh God, this is this is a headache and a half." But when you have that relationship to it from being a kid, I think it gets you through. And um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the scenes in this with the Lost Boys, and even with some of the adults, to be honest, even with some of the pirate fighting scenes, you do get a sense of that reckless, uh, chaotic Goonies energy, and a director who's just, <sighs> I feel like str- struggling to keep his hand on the reins a little bit mm. with all of that. And um, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, to answer your question, it does feel to me kind of like an appendix to that awkward growing pains thing. And it's funny that this is the sort of what one might see either as a valley or as a peak before he gets to, you know, the big year where he redefines blockbusters again and finally gets his best picture Oscar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I I sit somewhere in the middle between you guys because this is very much a film that like I can't, 
I cannot like divorce the nostalgia from it. So like even when mm-hmm. you like come at it with adult eyes, it is easier to kind of see the the kind of the the cracks in it as it were, or like the the kind of like you say the sense that he's sli- it's slightly out of his grasp a little bit in terms of how how big it goes or in, in terms of the pacing and just how much is being thrown into it but like i i cannot deny the the way the the fuzzy warm feeling it still gives me when like it hits particular <laughs> scenes and i think even just on the on a wider note both for spielberg as a filmmaker and 90s blockbusters and particularly at this point um i kind of ran ran through what was top of this year uh earlier the top film was terminator 2 judgment day and that is a film that kind of beckons in this new style of filmmaking that is really like cutting edge visual effects and for me hook feels like one of the last really Mm. traditional um map paintings uh compositing uh optical effects and uh massive set design sort of films that just start to kind of die out in the 90s from this point onwards as uh cgi becomes much more the norm and the kind of go-to approach so i i really appreciate it as that kind of artifact as well that that it's so very clearly kind of heartening back to not only um peter pan stories of old but the kind of um errol flynn sort of swashbucklers Mm. of your of uh 30s and 40s and (laughs) Uh, particularly when it comes to the set design, and I, and particularly kind of looking at that comment from Spielberg to Empire in 2018, and just like how he himself kind of feels, the prologue and the epilogue are the things that work for him, and then it's the stuff in the middle that doesn't. I think I'm the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I I was struck like watching it again for this, just how long it does take to get to neverland but also how um quite spiky he does make this relationship between uh particularly jack and how quite aggressively um negligent he is as a dad <laughs> he's the worst <laughs> he's, he's, he's so bad <laughs> i mean he's got a cell phone what more do you want he's just got this wonderful moment that i think that like I get that you find that like Jack and Maggie irritating, but the bit that gets me at the beginning that really hurts my soul is when he yells at them. And you know when like yeah. When yeah. he's and he's and it's just so abrupt and the kids go immediately, they go, Oh my god, I'm sorry and you're like, Oh yeah. but these mm-hmm. poor kids. These poor Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like neglected kids. Um Yeah. And his wife as well, she puts up a lot. <laughs> Oh, I mean, but she has her massive showdown. I think her her whole like monologue in that moment when she's like, "You're gonna miss everything," yeah. and by the yes. time by the time you're That's old good. enough, yeah, by the time you want their attention, they're not gonna give it to you. Yeah, like this is the time mm-hmm. to really like strike. Yeah. And I feel like that's the the main theme of the film is to not just reconnect with your own child, but your actual children. Maybe yeah. you should spend mm-hmm. some time with them. Yeah. I find that sentiment really powerful in films when it's expressed. Even though I'm not a parent, uh, I hope to one day be, but at the minute, I'm not, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, I'm not a parent. No, but that, that idea of, um, I think it, you can kind of see it as, as, the, as the kid in that relationship, the idea of 
being made to see your relationship with your parents from their perspective and as much as you're like oh, leave me alone i want to get out and do my own thing and to you they're annoying parents and, and like you know oh you're so uncool gosh leave me alone but to them they just want to spend more time with you because you're a person that they created and supported and nurtured throughout their lives so when a film expresses that i mean i'm thinking chiefly of toy story which is something we grew up with and uh that that really explicitly addresses that in the the well all of them really i suppose um and yeah the monologue that you mentioned sarah with the wife uh, is is i think very effective at conveying that um sentiment and i much as the film as a whole didn't do an awful lot for me that particular bit i thought was a very effective thesis statement yeah it's really impacting i find i personally find films Films about workaholics a struggle. I feel like yeah. no one's got, no one's done a really good. Well, actually, one person has, um, and that's uh, Nancy Myers for the Intern um, has really affected me. <laughs> yeah, so good. She's um, making a new movie, guys. <laughs> She's got that Netflix money. Oh, it just it's just that kind of. No one gets workaholic like people who like to work. They always, there's always like, you can't, you can't work and have a family. You have to have one or the, or both. Uh, and if you pick work, you're going to be miserable and unhappy, which I think is not very effective. I think there's people who can do both. Um, and there are people who are quite happy not having a family and working. Um, and I think Hook is the one that I can sort of kind of forgive for because the whole reason extra of it being and is, is for Peter to kind of reestablish himself as a person outside of work and then for like what would happen if your kids was were stolen by a crazy maniac who i still refuse to believe is dustin hoffman um so effective uh what what would happen if you're the people who you actually really care about and it's that kind of strike also i don't find his office really nice so i'm I'm quite happy for him to abandon his his workforce like, because there's a point where you're like, you're a workaholic, but also his team won't stop calling him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When he's on holiday. Yeah. So, he's literally on the other yeah. side of the, of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> they give him a massive send off and then they're like, we're going to call you every day about owls. Ah. <laughs> and I, I was i was sat there like i i quite like it as a beat because it kind of like hints to a slight playfulness that's still within him when he does the uh quick draw with the mobile phones but uh but i was also just sat there going like why are you doing this go to the baseball game <laughs> yeah, same here yeah <laughs> you promise don't okay. worry i'll make it <laughs> i'll be there Oh, I like the fact that he sends his um, colleague over to record yeah. it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. go now. <laughs> <laughs> but what do we also, so? Oh, sorry. But also, I'm just going to say that if I was running late, and I know kids don't understand, but also if I was running late in a meeting and I turn around and like, just record it, I don't want to miss it. That's also sort of shows that he still cares. In some yeah. way that he's like, I don't want to miss a moment of it. I've just, um, you go, record as much as possible, and I will get there as soon as possible. You know, you kind of yeah. see that mm-hmm. he's not just a cold workaholic father. He is kind of trying. Yeah. Um, yeah. As much as much as possible, he's just been bogged down by becoming a fucking lawyer. Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> becoming a no, no, it's lawyer. fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> he is, because yeah, there is a 
good sense of just how quite overwhelmed he is and uh kind of having to live up to the pressures of modern modern day life and of being a kind of both a a present father and also one that can like is working and providing and like the main overarching theme of that i think is quite successful and particularly applying it to the character of peter pan who's like has always been the um never never want to grow up character in uh popular culture and to i do think it's a strong uh concept to kind of like shake up the sort of expectations that you have of the character but how how successful do you think this film is at kind of like taking that um myth of peter pan and to kind of go back to mr ebert's quote of him feeling like it's not really bringing anything to it is something that i don't fully agree with i think as a concept it's quite an interesting one but what are your kind of thoughts as to the wider myth of peter pan and what it's doing with that oh god that's a hit me with a heavy question um i'm just gonna quote i'm just gonna do hook quotes for the whole podcast and then you're like hitting me deep with these deep questions i i mean there is a level where i can i get the i like the the concept is i think great it's a really good solid concept what and pan grew up um yeah kind of that is a great hook not to be cheap that is a really good hook it's a really it's a really good hook and um i kind of like i well i do like how they how and why he left neverland um yeah uh, especially because it brings a lot of connotations that he could never leave neverland for wendy but he did for moira like he properly fell in love and that's why he chose he chose love more than he did wanting to stay a kid um but I, mm. for me, I, I watch Hook outside of the myth, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, for me, sure. it's very much a Robin Williams vehicle. Um, so Peter Banning is his, is his own like kind of Peter against the young Peter. But I, I think there's enough time and separation between Wendy, Wendy's time with Peter, that you can kind of make that distinction. Hmm. Mm, definitely thank you for agreeing because i felt like i rambled a little bit but <laughs> no, no no well this is cool this is rambling podcast so this is what we, we ramble about rambling. i weirdly enough I, I think especially in an age where uh pop culture is dominated by easter egg laden well let me rephrase that pop culture is dominated by easter eggs masquerading as narratives you know think about something like uh, no way home, which I don't want to keep flogging that dead horse because it's had enough airtime by now. But that's yeah, not you keep bringing uh, it really up. A... <laughs> well, it's it's to illustrate a point. I'm going to say a nice thing about this film in relation to it. But that film is just like an Easter egg, fa- uh, fan service payoff machine. Whereas the, one of the things that I like most about this film are the little allusions to Peter Pan iconography mm. in the real world. Like when you have this this one little bit when. I think before they go to Great Ormond Street, when he's standing by the window and he's called and he kind of turns around and does the Peter Pan pose by the billowing curtain. And I like the little hooks on the doors and there's little, little, little things, little, the way the imagery is worked into this almost mundane everyday. Yeah. Yeah. I found that quite effective. So I think weirdly enough, the little Easter eggs in this are some of the things that worked best for me. The things that kind of set up. Yeah. Peter Pan mythology. But then, 
the more overt connections that it makes. I just found the way it tried to work in the Wendy relation and all that stuff just a little bit confusing and just tying itself in knots. Like, so he was the mate of the grandma. Then she loved she loved him and he didn't love and her. still loves him. I her. think <laughs> it's a movie full of, of much older ladies being in love with an underage boy or in Tinkerbell's case a baby. <laughs> um, Weird. Can we just spend a couple of time, but there's... a little bit on the fact that I Maggie Smith has been ancient to me since child. Yeah, because of this <laughs> film, Forever. because of how old yeah. they make her in this film, and like. So now I see her, and she actually is kind of like the age, I think. Maybe she even looks younger than she does now. Yeah. She looks yeah. younger than she did as yeah. Wendy. And <laughs> she's, she just constantly stayed at that age between that and the secret garden. Yeah. I'm like, you've just been an old woman <laughs> for my whole life. Fully agree. Like, <laughs> I had a moment when I was watching it the other day, and I was like, ah, she can't. How old was she when, when they, she was fifty six when they shot this? So it was a, it's a lot of makeup involved yeah. there. But I, I had a similar reaction. Impressive. <laughs> she, I love, I love her introductory shot. I think that's a very, very at the that, top of the stairs. Kind of Spielberg, and yeah, and yeah. she sort of emerges from the blue backdrop into this like golden light that illuminates her face. I think that's a lovely. I do shot. love that, and I love mm. the fact she calls him, still calls him boy, like hello boy. Yeah. Um, Boy. boy, hello, boy, and I like that. Oh, so Peter, you've become boy, a pirate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Fine. yeah, yeah. And she looks at him. She's still there's a bit at the end when he comes back and he's hugging his family and all that, and she looks at him with the horniest eyes. She still wants, still wants a bit of that, Peter. Maggie Smith got horny eyes. <laughs> got horny eyes. Granny Wendy. <laughs> Granny Wendy. <laughs> But what? So you 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 pop the question, Andy. What do you think about the, the Peter Pan of it all? The, the I linkage, I really do like it when uh, like any sort of narrative that takes like a kind of classic character and like um, introduces it into a world where like that character exists as the kind of property that every, like kind of speaking on a bit of a kind of metatextual level where it is a play that J M Barry wrote and it is something that kids have grown up with. And it just so happens that this old lady is uh, the Wendy who inspired the story, much like uh, um, the real story behind Peter Pan and as dramatized in Finding Neverland. Uh, <laughs> also a film I watched quite a bit um, in tandem with this when, uh, when that first came out. Um, but yeah, even just kind of like the little nods like you were saying, and also particularly the nod that... Um, Wendy's gone on to like uh, create a children's hospital and a, a adoption welfare service that's like quite similar to uh, what kind of J.M. Barry ended up going into and like you know even to the point where Great Ormond Street still own a lot of the kind of like intellectual intellectual rights to Peter Pan because of what J.M. Barry left behind and those little touches are really sweet and I think once we then get to Neverland I think it, um, which is something which I think gets a little buried in the mayhem, but I think is very much there. Is this quite quite a uh, sweet narrative with the Lost Boys of just kind of like having to readdress the fact that like this icon that they've beloved and uh, kind of had had a, had around them, and one that they themselves have kind of put into 
a figure of legend and a figure of myth and to have him kind of come back and suddenly rock their complete idea of what uh this ideal that they've held up for so many years whilst he's been away and to see what he has become and how that kind of shakes uh like threatens their, their kind of core but just kind of how steadfast and uh um how much faith they still have in him i think is very endearing um despite how kind of chaotic it like a lot of the lost boy scenes are there's something very endearing at the heart of what's going on with those collections of lost boys i think um what what do you guys think of the lost boys unsurprisingly love them (laughs) (laughs) Um, i think i think (laughs) <laughs> I I mean I kind of love the Rufio um and Pan kind of um rivalry that kind of turned into uh, mm. a father son kind of thing towards the end um I can't remember the name or is it Tubbs is that his name uh Fudbert Fudbert right I love yeah. his moment with Peter the the when he gives him Tudor's marbles and they laugh about it and then yeah. he goes I remember my mother. I think that's such a sweet, sweet, lovely, lovely moment. But obviously they're they're kind of like and what I like the Lost Boys is I like their kind of relationship with the pirates more than mm-hmm. I like their relationship with Pan. I like the two opposing extreme pirate characters versus the Lost Boys. And when it comes to the final yeah. battle, I kind of like that. Um as a backdrop. But you don't really spend enough time with them to care as much about them as you do peter and mm. his kids um i think mean, like, it is quite a crowded affair it's like even kind of like looking at the cast list you've got like no nap latch boy top too small don't ask <laughs> pockets fuck but there's quite a few that you'd, like i'm not even sure if i like can recall many of their names if it wasn't for a wikipedia list in front of me <laughs> yes I will say one of the best things that Hook does is because it's been some time since the Edwardian Peter Pan story that there are there are kids here, lost boys here yeah. from every yeah, era and decades. So if you go back and watch it, they're mm. not all Victorian children. There's eighties kids. That's why they've got yeah. basketball and skateboards. They're, and I really like that kind of attention to detail that like the, these are lost yeah. boys throughout time. Um which is why there's so like different different people and different levels and yeah. costuming, which I think is great. I think it's it's mm. smart because obviously it's not just gonna be a bunch of yeah, Victorian really boys running around. That they don't really like hammer over the hammer you over the head with. It's just it's just very much baked into it, like you said, to, for for it to be read as such. Because you even got like a kid who's come from like a prohibition era, haven't you? <laughs> Who might be yeah. my favourite, despite the fact I can't remember his name. <laughs> I was too busy hammering you over the head with, you did it, Peter. You're playing with us. There you are, Peter. <laughs> I just, I did. Uh, and it's a, a similar thing that, that ground me down with always is the amount of, um, you know, the Spielberg look. It's sort of a real intense, shallow focus close up with big saucer eyes and mouths agog at the wonder of what they're seeing. That's effective when it's used sparingly, but just the, the procession of used a lot here. Spielberg looks <laughs> on these lost boys' faces. Wow, Peter, you're doing it. <laughs> oh, boy. I just... Uh, oh, man. It just... Uh, uh, I did want to play in uh, Neverland a lot when I was younger. And, ooh, where are they? Um, yeah. 
and particularly wanted to eat all of that colourful Play-Doh food. <laughs> yeah. I want the blue, uh, the, the blue yeah. potato. Like George that Carlin was... said, where'd all the blue food go? What happened to the blue food? <laughs> I really wanted to do the slime. Do you know when he gets like um, oh, yeah. uh, uh, slingshot yeah. into the yeah. that thing? I mean that. <laughs> yeah. It's like if this was a more successful film in terms of like money and critical acclaim, then that oh, would be okay. such a theme park. That whole the pirate ship in Neverland, the whole yeah. the whole aspect of it, because it's yeah. such a theme park. Like you know, you could do oh oh, and every time I watch a film, yeah. I'm like, I just yeah. want to go there. I want to I want to go. I want to eat like that cocoa in a in a fucking yeah. <laughs> goblet. You know, yeah, they drink hot cocoa from a goblet Giant and that chicken. <laughs> oh my it's god! It's such a, a big theme park world, and it's so benign. And so, like, even with a big fight at the end, they're shooting eggs out of a chicken gun. Yeah, like, I love their contraptions. Be, this, but there's also still a pretty high body count. Like the background is littered with the corpses of these pirates. How are they I'm dying? I'm at an age right What's now that people? like there's a bit. I think there's a bit where they just shine light in their eyes and then that death enables them I am at an age yeah yeah or they get paint in their eyes and I'm like that would that would I would if I got paint in my eyes that's me gone like I'd be like oh my god (laughs) sometimes yeah Sometimes I'll, I'll get I'll get an eyelash stuck in my eye and I'll think, what, what if that goes around the back of my eyeball and blinds me? That's it, I'm done for. I, so I, I get I, it. I, I, yeah, I, I actually sprayed a little bit of deodorant <laughs> in my eye the other day and I nearly called off what I was doing in the evening. Because I was like, no, I can't do this now. <laughs> <laughs> so I get it. <laughs> you don't need to. Yeah, there was one time. There was one time uh, my girlfriend and I were going to meet Andy and his girlfriend to watch Ready Player One several years ago, and um, uh, it was a very very rainy day. Not dissimilar to, to no, today wasn't raining, was it? Yesterday was. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I didn't notice the big puddle by the side of the road and the big car speeding towards it. And uh, my girlfriend tried to warn me. I didn't heed her warning, and I sort of turned to look at the source of concern. And this wave of, of filthy road water you know engulfed me and that was it i said i'm i'm in a bad mood now i'm not doing anything and i called you and said andy our plans are cancelled i'm going home (laughs) so i i I understand understand (laughs) fully fully did not expect to grow up and relate to the pirates as much as i do (laughs) now (laughs) be like a bunch of kids just squirting paint at me i'm gone (laughs) bye see ya (laughs) <laughs> nothing's oh, worth it you see that kid yeah. he just curled himself big, uh... up and knocked people out just rolling downstairs <laughs> <laughs> he made himself into a ball <laughs> Christ hurts me thinking about the I really like the one pirate bring... the one pirate who sees Peter Pan and just jumps out a window not dealing with this <laughs> not today <laughs> I love a l- little bit of trivia that I found on my travels was um the scene at the uh nearer the end when um Peter's picking uh the kid to kind of follow it follow up then take the mantle of pan uh they didn't tell any of the lost boys which one it was going to be and it, it was only robin williams and steven spielberg that knew so uh the look of joy on little fudbutt's face when he gets the 
sword is a is a look of genuine surprise and awe, which is a beautiful nice beautiful look of surprise and awe. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like he's the, he's the one lost boy yes. that Peter <laughs> kind of spoke to on a level on the same level. You kind of understood what it meant yeah, to be absolutely you know, away from your family and and kind of thing. I I think that moment is so beautiful. Yeah. I definitely wanted to be one with a, one of the four-way paint guns when I was a kid. <laughs> yes, I wanted yeah. an egg throwing machine. Like, who didn't? I also kind of wanted to curl <laughs> yeah. myself up and see if I could knock people out by going down the stairs, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Without injuring myself. Tried it once, doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, a very, very bad concussion. But there is the bit where he does it the second time and he goes, Ooh. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> shake his head. Not again, <laughs> guys. I can't keep doing this. <laughs> it's, it's the it's the OG jackass, you know. When it's like, guys, you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm Tubbuck. <laughs> and this is Neverland. Do do do. Well, speaking of Lost Boys. Did you see the new Jackass? Uh, it's one of my favourite films of the year. Honestly. Oh. It's great, isn't it? Great. Yes. <laughs> Do you, it's, I've never it's been felt so cathartic watching grown men smash their penises into different things. It was just it yeah. was just like I think it's because Jackass never punches down. It or it's always Yeah. Absolutely. Because everyone's not, on no. the same level. Um and they're all doing it and they all know what they're signing up for. It was just a, it was just a, a ride. It was so good. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I saw it twice. <laughs> I I watched it next to a, a friend of mine. I don't even know Tom Beasley. Um, and I went. That was that was cathartic. Oh, yeah, and he went. Yeah. If only you you if you don't have a penis. <laughs> There's so much <laughs> dick stuff that happens in there. So much so dick much trauma. Dick drama. Christ. You know what you're gonna, going for. Talk about never growing up. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I don't know how to segue from that. Back um, into dick trauma. To, to talking about dick <laughs> trauma. What do we think of uh, Julia Roberts' as Tinkerbell? <laughs> Yeah, I like it. I think I could have done without the romantic she's in love with him. I but I know that Tinkerbell yeah. has always been in love with Peter Pan. That's been her thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh but like I kind of yeah. I mean I like her. I think she makes a great Tinkerbell, but I, I always can do without I'm always unnecessary romances. But I do like the fact that he's like I'm Moira. Mm. Moira's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it would have been a like smarter move to kind of like even play into the fact that he had grown up and for her to kind of subvert that kind of part of the dynamic to just her being like, yeah, no, I'm not not really into this anymore. Oh. <laughs> no, you're not the, the suave, good-looking teen I knew. <laughs> have you ever seen the breakdown of how they did, you know, the shot when she's in the doll's house yeah. and he's looking down, talking to her? The over-the-shoulder shot of him talking to her is all in camera. It was always a forced perspective. Mm-hmm. It's um, she was just very, very far away. Yeah. <laughs> it's really impressive to look at. I, I really love it. Yeah, I say it's, it's one of the last that kind of really goes heavy in for that sort of sort of look in this kind of uh, landscape of block, blockbusters in the early nineties. Um, how, how do you kind of look at it as a? Because now you you were saying you think of it less as a Peter Pan story and, and more as a kind of robin williams movie um where how how do you kind of rate 
his performance in this and um within that and also kind of comparing it to other robin williams stuff Top you grew tier. up with it's Sarah's it, holding up her it, hands because <laughs> uh, he gets the silliness and he gets the jokiness and the outrageousness of the situation he finds himself in because he can do that's robin williams but what robin williams is was always so impeccable at was penetrating the emotional core and crux of his characters. And that really translates here. Um, the whole the whole sequence where he figures out he is Peter Pan and why he left and, you know, that his happy thoughts are his kids. That is so beautifully done, as well as, like, everything that happened after. I, I, just everything he does, his emotional arc post figuring out that he is actually confined he actually is peter pan is so well done that he can make me cry just thinking about his delivery alone there's a bit where he arrives the initial fight um and it's the the bit where i start crying onwards like i don't stop because so much stuff happens and it's (laughs) when he starts fighting and he's talking to jack and at this point jack has forgotten who he is because he's spent so long in neverland um Mm. He's dressed up like Captain Hook and he's basically turning around and he, he says, I found my happy thought. You never guess what it is. It was you. And the minute he, and the way he says it, and I'm welling up just thinking about it right now. It's, it's so, <laughs> he's so good, but he can also have that childlike energy that you can believe that Robin Williams himself is a Peter Pan-like character. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. It's even just his general look. He's got that kind of pixie glint in his eye, the kind of like mischievous look that is just like tailor fit for this. And I, it's one of the weirder ones for me, I think, in terms of like, so I'd say like Mrs. Doubtfire was probably the bigger Robin Williams film for me growing up. And I think when you kind of compare the two, um, it's quite interesting how quite reserved this one feels on a par with some of like the more broader comedic stuff. And I, I, I do think it, um, it does speak like you, you were saying to a bit more of his work as a character actor, almost to kind of like go through that change in, in Peter. And I, it always, I, I do always feel slightly that it's a performance that is slightly more overshadowed by the bigger, um, bigger pantomime and, top build um performance from dustin hoffman but i i do think there's i would have liked it probably a little bit more between the two of them because they are kept away for such a long stretch and um but yeah i think it's always been it's always been one that i've always like when you think back to kind of like like even looking over this so like kind of considering tom hanks at one point for this but i find it very hard to picture anyone else particularly at this time in hollywood playing a grown-up peter pan who else could have done it really (laughs) it it works like it does because he is robin williams playing a guy who's trying to tamper down his robin williams instincts and the film is essentially him rediscovering what it is to be robin williams I, i quite regardless of my feelings to the film in general i do enjoy when stars do that with their persona it's kind of like um tom cruise in edge of tomorrow where it's it's him trying to trying to work his way to being the competent professional tom cruise that we know and love from being a bumbling schmuck at the start i i enjoy that and uh man he's like with mrs doubtfire and with jumanji and even to a lesser degree barry levinson's toys robin williams was such a huge fixture of my childhood and i think 
I can pretty safely say that about all of us. I think it was a huge part of our childhoods, and there, there is still, there is. I'm, I'm still not fully over the loss of him. I think because there was such an innocence and a lost boy quality to him as a man, and as a yeah, I don't know. It was like a, qu- a quiver to his line deliveries that that that's just barely beneath the surface, and I. It, very very affecting i find his whole aura his whole being mm. his loss was like losing a favorite uncle it was mm-hmm. it was like oh yeah I remember that headline coming out and then bob hoskins as well but like that that, that was yeah <laughs> who is also great here as well I, he's a lot of fun uh, he's as me he's my favorite bob hoskins <laughs> he's just doing throughout all the notes that i made in the film expressing various degrees of consternation shall we say <laughs> it was always bob Hoskins knows exactly what he's doing he's doing exactly what he's been asked to do he's just uh yeah he's an absolute professional here's the scene between him and hook the, the do you know when hook's like i'm going to commit suicide i am yeah. me me he's trying don't to stop me don't try and stop me try and stop me um <laughs> Their interactions together are so good and so yeah. funny. And the fact that little bits like Smee forgets words, you know, like he says, I've had an, epi- an mm. apostrophe, you know, apostrophe. and stuff like <laughs> I've had an apostrophe. And then Smee is enduring the battle, which now I'm like, I'd probably be one of those kids. No, I wouldn't. I'd be Smee. I'd be like, I'm going to rob the place and bounce. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, Smee, Smee, what about Smee? Smee's me. What about Smee? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> those two together, I and I still, again, I've said this before, like literally ten minutes ago. I cannot, my brain cannot compute that that's Dustin Hoffman in this book. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I even remember it, like as a kid, not kind of. It was just Captain Hook. It wasn't an actor yeah. doing it. It was. It's the. It's the still the quintessential Captain Hook for me. Like nothing. It, nothing's quite come close. <laughs> And he's also slightly terrifying at the same time. Yeah. You know, like the boo boo box scene with Glenn Close. Glenn Close. Is um, <laughs> <laughs> a terrifying kind of way because, like, throughout Disney, throughout Disney and a lot of the adaptations, they make Hook a bit more bumbling than I like. Mm. I, I quite like him yeah. as a sinister old man, you know, have at the sinister old man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like the fact that because he's you, when you think about it, he wants to kill a kid. He wants to kill yeah. all the kids in Neverland. It's his life mission. His, his life eternal mission. life mission. <laughs> uh, and I think here, and what what I like about his hook here is that um, he sort of knows how to get under Peter's skin as an adult. Even as an adult, he knows the, the buttons to push. Like when they're fighting, and yeah. he's like. Like you'll wake up and you'll think you'll remember you'll you'll just be back in your boring this old life. None of this would have ever happened. It was all a dream. Um, and so I find him quite sinister. And his whole plot to brainwash his own kids, like Peter's kids, yeah. is is great. And I think it's emotional warfare. Emotional <laughs> warfare. And there's a bit where he's like, "That's my boy," and Peter's like, "That's my boy." Uh, <laughs> no, Jack. And that whole kind of thing. Um, and you know he keeps Maggie locked away, which I would honestly. I get the Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that song, Stephen. We don't need that song, Stephen. And I really love the monologue he gives because 
<laughs> the mum like he gives to the kids when he's all like um your your parents hate you and he's like me yeah. be me mine mine <laughs> mine now 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 i really love that because i think it's like every kid's fear as well that the, the parents like you mm-hmm. you've the kind of ruined like your parents you. life <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i also just love the flair of the man as well just like refusing to go down any sets of stairs that don't have a red carpet (laughs) (laughs) where's the red carpet oh yeah oh man yeah there's that he absolutely kills there's one line reading that absolutely killed me and it's when they're about to play baseball and he he says to one of his uh maidens uh confound you true santa glove me I love the the twitch, the when he hears a clock yeah. and the twitch, oh, yeah, the, the little the twitch of his handlebar mustache. Because that was a big thing in the Disney version. It's it's yeah. pretty cool how they do it in the live action. I love that. But yeah, he's got some oh, some impressive line deliveries. I I hooks the one that you quote the most. You know, how do you fit into those fetching tights, Peter? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, oh, he's so good, and the yeah, bit of the yeah. bad form. Um, bad form, bad form, bad form, Peter. <laughs> um, My great and worthy opponent, not this pitiful, really... spineless, bloated godfish. <laughs> if we're going to talk about epic transitions, the bit where he's laughing, and then I don't know how they've done it, but he does it. He goes, ha 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 ha, and it turns into a drum beat for the Lost Boys, and it's so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on on that note, this movie is like on the on the precipice of being a musical, don't you think? In terms of the stagings and the camera movements, and you can see you can see it's weird that it took him until 2020, 2019, whenever he shot it to make uh, a musical outright because he's been really chomping at the bit to do it yeah. for so long. And there's, there's so many moments in this where you think, oh, they're going to burst into song because it's just it's so close to that point. But mm-hmm. you can you can you can see him dying to do it. I'm glad he didn't because I we wouldn't have had the wonderful John Williams yeah, score. I was about to say mm-hmm. that's my MVP yeah. for this whole thing. <laughs> oh, just and like one of those scores that is so filled with nostalgia but beauty as well. That if you yeah. played the "You Are the Pan" kind of motif to me, I will probably like crumple. Yeah, and cry. Just it is, I mean, quintessential John Williams score. Absolutely, it's up there with some of his best work. Just even kind of the way it form like morphs across the film because we it kind of starts out more in the key of a kind of you. <laughs> there's that one track that's kind of like a modern nineties uh, kind of like family drama sort of score where it's like the bass guitar and tinkly piano, <laughs> and then once we get into London, it starts going into this a bit more kind of slightly magical mysterious the like the pan the pan flutes kind of being kept slightly out of there but it's starting to creep in and then once we get into neverland you've got like the big adventure theme and hook's got his own like i love hook's theme where it's just like that's been playing in my head <laughs> constantly this oh week. my god <laughs> yes <laughs> It, but yeah, it does. It does everything that you want a John Williams score to do, and like, like you say, Josh, it, like you can get that sense of like it being one step away from a musical. I think just because one, how like the movement in which Spielberg tends to shoot shoot his films, 
and just how strong the musical identity of the film is as it stands uh, speaks to the 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 uh, absolutely incredible work that John Williams does once again. <laughs> I don't know where she did a musical because you've got that wonderful musical happening at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, the school musical. I don't, don't want to grow, grow up. up. <laughs> yeah. Which they're singing while he's on his cell phone in the audience. Yeah, There's like, come on, man, a, just a, walk out. <laughs> Now, I I have talked to a couple of like other people who grew up watching this film, and like they kind of point to the uh, Rufio characters, like one being like a character they saw as being very cool when they were younger, but two also the the death scene being one of those first kind of scenes in a kids film where they were like, oh god, like characters can characters I like and love can perish in these in these films that I love, um, and I and I do think like even watching it again with adult eyes like that particular moment is quite like a uh um, it does well to kind of remind you of the both that like neverland and like there's the kind of reality of real life and mortality and what have you but also like like neverland for all its kind of magic it's still a place where people can die you might not grow up but you can die and it does so with a character that is like clearly so designed to kind of be very cool and appeal to 90s kids at the time with his rad mohawk <laughs> and his skateboard <laughs> can you can you guys oh, remember and his insults yeah <laughs> his insults I tried to learn some but it's nah <laughs> I really I think of all all my years I've always wanted to learn the bit where he's like you chew good food <laughs> um, and the only bits that I remember are like you paramecium brain you Second grade teacher. I remember Pe- Peter's more than I remember Rufio's. Yeah. <laughs> Second grade teacher. I remember this. <laughs> and flies Short on the side. <laughs> and then I remember when he loses it and he's all like, you man, you, you stupid, stupid man. man. <laughs> <laughs> it does sort of make me laugh though. You've got Rufio and his character for the entire film, but as soon as he's dying, he goes, I've got daddy issues. <laughs> 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 I, I wish I had a father, father like you. <laughs> like you. I, the, the bit that I like about that scene, not that Rufio dies. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, Rufio dies. Um, for me, I've never been like that overly obsessed with Rufio dying because that's, he's a kind of a bit character. Yeah. Um, I do now because it's it, it's just after I've started crying anyway. Mm-hmm. It's the bit where, because it's the bit that Jack realizes he's fucked up. Um. And he has this wonderful moment where he's like, oh, dad, I'm sorry. And I kind yeah. of feel like it's a really beautiful, tender moment where he realizes he's starting to realize who his dad is. And then he's starting to realize that he, some of his actions, even though he's been brainwashed mm. kind yeah, of thing. So I think, here. and it's that kind of, and yeah, after Rufio dies, isn't it the moment where he picks up his kids and he's like, I'm going to take them home. Yeah. I'm not going to kill you. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm this. not going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got I've got kids, and I don't want to lose anything else, and they can't lose me. Mm-hmm. And Jack's like, I want to go home. Absolutely, yeah. And then we get a cheery old, cheery old London epilogue where throwing the phone away once and for all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because we just have to make sure he's learned. With one of the guys. <laughs> <laughs> With the moment, the most 
heart-wrenching moment. Oh, I say heart-wrenching, it's but also heartwarming because you. I like the fact that they still have Moira-esque. Except, sorry, I forgot to mention, there's a bit that I, I Wendy winds me <laughs> up in this moment. Moira, Moira, who's lost her kids as well, Moira, right, is grieving on the bed beside Wendy. And Wendy then goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, Wendy, do you know what we British do in times of crisis? Go and get a cup of tea for me. <laughs> you can see Moira yeah. going, but I've lost them. But they, they've got this, they bring it back to Moira in, I think, the most, the most special, heart-wrenching, emotional line, which is, I see them so often in my dreams that when I wake, they're still there. Mm, and, that's, crying. Uh, and then they pop out, <laughs> and then you're like, oh! Yeah. So, um, and I love it, because it's a very good moment, because they come back and obviously they've forgotten her, and then they yeah. sort of start remembering again. And then that whole kind of sequence where he's like, um, he comes out, shimmies up the yeah, drain pipe. Yeah. <laughs> I got a drain pipe to shimmy up because <laughs> uh, I'm not a fairy ghost. That whole moment, the whole bit when he comes back because like the LO trouble. And you know, he's yeah. under the Peter Pan statue um, <laughs> as well. And uh, the bit where he's like, "What have I told you about these <laughs> these windows?" And he gives the old man his marbles back, and the old man goes yippee, and starts <laughs> flying and whatever. Fuck off! I don't know. <laughs> I can't believe I've been talking about Hook for like an hour and a half, right? And I haven't brought up the the one character who I think is my spiritual animal in the whole film. And that's no. Liza. <laughs> she just runs in at the end. And because just... Liza has... Yeah, she screams. Cause she goes... <laughs> and that's because Liza has the most memorable moment in the whole entire film. And that's when she's she's been a bit battered and broken on the on the stairs. And she's trying to tell him what happened. And <laughs> she goes... And the children were screaming. The children were screaming. And I just, I love it. Really, she's like, I've only got two lines of dialogue in this film. I'm gonna make you remember me. And honestly, I'm like, fair play. I think, I think, in my head, in a future costume party if anyone ever asked me to go i'd go with liza and just so anytime someone asked me i'd be like that's the children that's like, do you have a staircase so good <laughs> so good oh yeah two doors gets to fly oh we had this really sad moment where he's like oh you yeah, missed the adventure yeah. again like, can still fly all right <laughs> <laughs> so uh-huh. so good bangerang bangerang <laughs> bangerang did you guys have any other further thoughts or uh, points you wanted to address before I go into the, the tweet section of the show there was that bit when uh, the crocodile kills Hook again and it falls and I was like uh, okay probably gonna burp and then he burps uh, it does burp went, okay <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Um, the mermaids. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Random mermaid makeouts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> making out. Everyone's so horny for Peter. Everyone's so horny for Peter. 
I mean, I think they are trying to keep him alive. I think that's the main uh, point. Yeah, yeah. But... <laughs> Enjoying it quite a bit by the looks of things. <laughs> um, Phil Collins. Uh, Phil Collins, yes, of course, Phil popping Collins. up as an inspector. <laughs> well, like I've lost, you know, he's forgotten how to fly. Well, one does. <laughs> well, one does. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to think. My brain's just going for the rolodex of, like, of yeah. thoughts that I, like, I have about this movie because there's so many, so many points. It's very loud. Great to fly <laughs> at the beginning. I really like that touch as well. Yeah, me too. The, the, the fear of flying is a good touch. I like that. Like generally, that the approach to the character where it's kind of like he's repressed these notions of the of the kind of myth and the legend and it's become they've become fears and anxieties in the adult version of himself because it, the, uh, they kind of hark back to who he really is and like that that's kind of a thing i'm sure some of us have expressed when they, we feel like we have to get to grips of adulthood we'll start to repress certain parts of ourselves that like kind of made us who we are so i, I do think that that is all really well articulated and and like I said near the top of this, I do find this very hard to. I I am very aware it's very flawed, but I find it very hard to to remove myself from the kind of memories it invokes and the the the, the very the very warm feeling it conjures up inside. <laughs> I think me and my sister and my dad we watched it a couple of years ago over a couple of drinks and we ripped it apart. Like no, even though we knew how much this movie means to us we we were just yeah. like this makes no sense and this makes no sense <laughs> like we haven't the ongoing argument we've had is the food whether it's real or not <laughs> no like because they're like you're using your imagination and my dad's you like they're play. not i was like but they can't they can't not eat these lost boys can't <laughs> be eating air their imagination brings it to life but it's a point of contention with my family and i feel like it's one of those films that i can turn around and be like i get why Josh maybe not be like as over and moored with it, you know, and, and <laughs> why the kids are annoying and why lost boys are annoying. And I get it, but also I don't accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I put fully on the wavelength there. <laughs> you're both, yeah. you're both right there at the end with the lost boys saying, <laughs> we believe in you. <laughs> yeah. That's you two. Look at our blind face. Yeah. <laughs> mommy you know that kind of and you're like oh I, i'm fully there i'm with you i'm crying you know Drowning i'm, I'm all on board like, i'm liza right I'm like... <laughs> i get it yeah uh. so your adventures are over oh no to live to live will be an awfully big adventure Now to, to to build us into <laughs> the tweets, but brace yourself, Sarah. Some of them weren't uh, so one too <laughs> what uh, weren't too effusive of a uh, of hook. Uh, we had one from Jack Gregson at 
jpg in digital 3d on twitter who said mm-hmm. my thoughts on hook are simple maybe we should just let peter pan go <laughs> which i think speaks to well, like a larger kind of intellectual property thing because you always get like certainly ones that have been around for a long time i always think like this and king arthur as being like kind of ones that uh always seem to get regurgitated with a new spin on every now and again mm. but uh are you guys excited for Pan as well yeah there's gonna say one. yeah the literally the yeah. david lowry peter and wendy which i am excited yeah. for i like him of his track record hmm. yeah plenty to be excited for with that one yeah we uh we also had a tweet from lovely harley mumford at fandom i'm, I'm gonna read the nice one if you don't mind andy because i think yeah, that's I wanna, fine. Wanna <laughs> comp- compensation uh <laughs> harley uh mumford at fundamentals fundamentals rather another childhood favorite that i rewatched recently and still enjoyed it's a lot of fun with some great performances from williams and hoffman as the leads Although I will say Rufio is significantly way less impressive upon a rewatch as an adult. <laughs> he then added, go easy on this one, Josh. <laughs> so, uh, he, knew. he knew, I suppose. <laughs> I get that with Rufio. You, you, you feel less enamored to, towards a, mo- <laughs> a red and black mohawk when you're near 30. <laughs> Why shouldn't I, a twain? <laughs> Uh, we, we also had a tweet from Victor Field at Cindy Lover nine sixty nine, who called Hook a charmless slog, just like the main character <laughs> takes ages to take flight. <laughs> Only John Williams <laughs> understood the assignment. Great score that deserved a better movie. Uh, <laughs> your face said, "Sarah, I'm so sorry." And that was. <laughs> I, I I take offense to that only insofar as it, it overlooks the Bob Hoskins contribution. But other than that, I think I pretty much agree. Uh, and then we had, and this is our first correspondence from Miss Tatham, Andrew. I believe so. The um, Miss Emily Tatham, who designed our artwork, she emailed us. We haven't had an email for a while. To say, I watched the first 45 minutes of this film, and I can safely say it's the worst and most <laughs> annoying 45 minutes of cinema I've ever watched. I didn't watch Fival, but I bet I'd hate that less. The child acting is insufferable, and I cannot fathom having to sit through three hours of it. Solidarity to Josh in these difficult times. <laughs> Little bit of context here, so Emily's Emily's my partner and she was in like we both i was like oh i'm gonna watch hook for the podcast and he's like yeah I'll, I'll sit down and watch up with you i haven't seen that since i was a kid and i was like all right cool it's gonna be fun and then you know when you get the sense that when you're watching something with someone and you could just feel them sat next to you just not like not vibing it at all <laughs> and i was just like okay and then I was like, oh. oh no and, I was like, and she was like can we watch something else and i was like but they haven't gotten to neverland yet <laughs> Bad form, guys. Bad form. Bad form. <laughs> I, I, I did have to watch this film over about three days. I couldn't do it all in one. It was just... Free act structure. <laughs> <laughs> but hey. I'm going to hey, bring hey, bad form it. back it for sure. <laughs> yeah. We made it through. And it's, it's nice to hear people say nice things about a film. Absolutely. It's nice to hear nice people say nice things about a film that they enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a good film. Yeah, I'm not like <laughs> it's a it, 
it's just do you know what like and i don't begrudge anyone i understand like nostalgia and sometimes like you mentioned the goonies i when i rewatched the goonies recently i was like what 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 is this (laughs) (laughs) you know and like because that it's got the weirdest opening right yeah yeah. like it's so bizarre (laughs) and i rewatched fern gully recently oh and yeah i've not seen that since i was a kid and i watched that and i was like what crap was i on as a child? <laughs> talk Be- about vhs trailers that are burned into my brain that was ahead yeah. of home alone fern gully's in there <laughs> fern gully aka avatar <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think like particularly speaking to Goonies and Hook, that like a big thing with like this whole podcast enterprise that we're embarking on here is like kind of realizing how much uh, nostalgia can really hold hold for you with it with certain artifacts from your youth, and that, that I would say that this is the one that I've really felt it most strongly in terms of like kind of looking at something of adult eyes and kind of realizing like yes i i see that like i see why this wasn't well received at the time and i see why a lot of people have this uh, on a kind of lower rungs of a spielberg um uh opinions but like yeah like i say it's i do just find it very hard to completely remove that and i'm okay with that I am okay with yeah. loving her <laughs> as much as I do. You know, no one's going to convince it. And I watched it last year. Like, and I still got those goosey yeah. bumpy feelings. Um, and I, I mean, like I, kids aren't in my future, but um, if my nieces and nephews, I will make yeah. them watch it and I will continue that. It's just going to be one of those forever films, I guess, uh, with me and my family. Yeah. Banger. Or, all I'm going to say is that Matrix Resurrections is out now on DVD and Blu-ray. <laughs> you did this last week. <laughs> it's funny bit. <laughs> like it or lump it. But either way, watch Matrix Resurrections. <laughs> Love the Wachowskis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, praise yeah. the Wachowskis. Every time. <laughs> Every time. Well, this was fun. I yeah. I enjoyed this more than the film. I yeah, I've had a really oh. good time. Uh, it like it's, it's like just... you were saying, Josh. Um, it, it's always great to have someone like come on who's got like such passion and love for the mm-hmm. film we're discussing. So thank you for bringing <laughs> that to the table, Sarah. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's an all right film. It's okay. <laughs> they're the, they're the worst episodes. Like we had to do the film Dad. Where to do uh, Fandango films that very the obscure little ones on your face speaks to the the cultural footprint of these films. <laughs> so it's nice to have some passion. I mean, I've mm-hmm. never heard of these films. <laughs> I'm not convinced they exist, and I've seen them. <laughs> uh, no, it's really good. Um, and you know, if I can champion Absolutely. her as much as possible, then I don't know. No one's gonna. You know, I know people are going to be like, she's just got racist, <laughs> but I don't care because it, it is such a, such yeah. a part of my makeup. Um, and 
it's generally enjoyable mm-hmm. and I loved it. And uh, well, yeah. thank you very much again for stopping by. Uh, where where can the listeners find you? Should they be so inclined to keep up with what you're doing and any projects that you might have on the go? Oh, many. Um, I am on Twitter at Cookie N Screen. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, you can find a lot of my film work on Movies on Weekends dot com uh film stories and hey you guys um i also do marketing for the uk jewish film um and i'm also writing a couple of books so um come find me in any of those projects uh yeah <laughs> fantastic oh we've got to say happy pre-code april yeah <laughs> oh my god thank you so much yes pre-code april if anyone's listening to this uh, and it's still april go watch some pre-code films they're between Technically class between 1929 and 1934, risque Hollywood, um, any Frederick March film, um, mm-hmm. including Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931. Come join us in the hashtag Precode April. Watch from Precode Films. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and uh, we hope you also uh, get in touch with us next time, dear listener, for our next episode. We'll be taking a look at the late, great Peter Bogdanovich's 1992 adaptation of Michael Frayn's play Noises Off, starring Michael King, Carol Burnett, Christopher Reeve, Julie Haggerty, and John Ritter. And if you fancy watching the film along with us and don't have it on disc, it is available to rent digitally from Amazon, Google Play, and YouTube. Anymore? No, Anyone no, that, that's no. Unfortunately, it's quite limited. This one, it's quite a, another obscure one. <laughs> if you've got any thoughts on noise stuff that you want to share with us, please tweet us at Ramblin Amblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail and we look forward to hearing what you've got to say. Indeed, is this one that you're familiar with at all, Sarah? <laughs> nope, not at all. No. no, I've heard of the play before, and I was kind of shocked to discover that there was a film. Because from what I from what I gather, it's a very very much a play that relies on the stage format. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. But uh, we hope you do all join us next time. Uh, big thank you once again, Sarah, for joining us today to ramble all about Hook. And uh, the last thing to say is uh, thank you as well for listening, dear listener. Uh, take care of yourself. Think happy thoughts, and remember, to live is an awfully big adventure. Goodbye. Take care. (laughs) (laughs) You did it, Andrew. (laughs) You believe.